Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast and episode two of this week with your host Harry Stebbings and I'd love to see you on Snapchat at H Stebbings with two B's and the main man Jason Lemkin would love to see you on Twitter at Jason LK. But to the show today and I'm thrilled to welcome Daniel Ruck to the hot seat today. Now Daniel is the founder and CEO at Rocket Trip, the startup that reduces travel spend by rewarding employees to save. They have backing from some incredible investors including the likes of Bessemer Venture Partners, Canaan Partners and Y Combinator and prior to Rocket Trip, Dan was a VP in New Europe for Tremor Video, and before that he held several director and managerial level positions at Dakota until Dakota's sale to AOL. I do also want to say a big thank you to Matt Strazat, namely for the intro to Dan's Day, without which the episode would not have been possible. However, before we dive into the show's day, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast, typo-tolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences by owning the entire stack from engine to server. Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. For small SaaS teams, Algolia is a perfect investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now SASTA podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash SASTA with the coupon code SASTA podcast. That's algolia.com forward slash sasta however i'm now delighted to hand over to daniel ruck founder and ceo at rocket trip good that's perfect okay i think we're warmed up Dan, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A huge thanks to Matt Strazat, namely for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Now, I'd love to get started today with a bit about you and how you made your way into the wonderful world of SaaS and came to found Rocket Trip. Sure. I, I was a, a P&L owner in Europe at my last company and, and always frustrated, but also intrigued by the misalignment of priorities between employees and employers, right, in, in terms of what motivates them, what gets them excited, and what their interests are. And then, and then my, my second interest has is, is been in uh, behavioral psychology and specifically the loyalty economy, the hospitality industry and the airline industry, how uh, they've managed to create these point programs that make people so fascinatingly loyal to brands, right? We, we do crazy things. We all do it. We fly at less convenient times. We stay farther away. We spend more money for the aspirational value of points, of loyalty, of the upgrade, of free Wi-Fi, of extra legroom, whatever it may be. There, there's a huge amount of perceived value but low actual value that's attributed to those programs. And so then the question became, what if we could inject some of that loyalty into a corporate environment and make employees, um, not necessarily predictably irrational in terms of behavioral economics, but fiercely loyal to the companies they work for? And and we focus on travel and business travel specifically for three main reasons. Um, One, it's an enormous TAM, total addressable market. One and a quarter trillion dollars is spent globally on business travel every year. um, That's just VCs. (laughs) It's actually way more when you take the employees, too. Um, two, it's a pain point for every CFO in the world. Right? There is no CFO on the planet that doesn't, doesn't want to reduce their OPEX. And business travel is the largest sector of discretionary spending. Um, and, and three, it's a proven model. So back in 2008, Google introduced a model very similar to what we built at Rocket Trip internally. And, and it was just the perfect storm of, of the best Petri dish to, to grow a company out of. And that's how we got started. But talking about the starting there, I do want to discuss kind of 
being the founder and everything that's encapsulated in terms of responsibility. So in terms of the responsibility itself, how do you view the responsibility that comes with founding the company? And, and how important is kind of the accountability element to you? For me, accountability is table stakes. You know, growing a company is not just the founder. It's it's the collective parts of the whole. It takes a village. Uh, and, and Rocket Trip started with one person and we're now over 70. And everybody is hold to the same standards of accountability internally. Uh, because when one one part of the whole fails, um, the whole fails, right? And so accountability is incredibly important. But it's just one part of it in terms of what makes these startups grow. Growing a company is incredibly challenging, um, as, as anyone who has done it uh, will attest to. Uh, and so being able to trust the accountability of your peers and your teammates is an incredibly important part of the organization. I, I don't know how we would survive without accountability as a key value of the organization. In terms of that accountability, how does it play out then in terms of your work processes and potentially responsiveness to the team? It's a good question. So, so we've adopted uh, Mark Benioff's uh, V2Mom strategy, which if you're not familiar with it, it's, it's basically a framework for uh, getting alignment within the company. And the way it works is, is basically you start top down with, with uh, V2Mom stands for vision, values, methods, obstacles, and measures. It was actually introduced to us by our new uh, chief revenue officer uh, who came on board last year, who had a long tenure at Salesforce and, and found a lot of value in it. But it basically is, a, is a, a framework for getting the entire company on board with what the vision is, what your values are, um, the methods by which you are going to accomplish the vision, uh, what are the obstacles in way, and then what are the measures uh, that you're going to hold yourself accountable to. And, and the whole point of this is to put on paper and publish company-wide the measures, right? And, and the measures are the most important part of this. And then we sit down and have a post-mortem um, after the time period that that particular V2Mom was relevant for. Um, did we achieve our measures and, and how did we do? And, and that's a really important part of the process is holding each other accountable. And, and it's not about pointing fingers. It's about working together as a team to make sure that we're all on the same page, driving in the same direction to achieve our goals. Because again, I can't do this by myself. Nobody on my team could do this by themselves. It's when you have accountability and mutual responsibility, that's where the magic happens. When you don't have it, conversely, things fall apart. In terms of accountability and mutual responsibility, I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on micromanaging then and if it's mm-hmm. always wrong and particularly in response to the accountability element well, it's definitely not always wrong in fact it in some cases can be absolutely right and best practices from any sort of management training programs will talk about the different personas for different personas that that require different management training right or different management approaches in the case of micromanaging there are several employees inside our organization that thrive on very very routine and frequent feedback and enjoy that kind of oversight. And there's other employees in the organization that thrive on autonomy and uh, you, know, you ask them to do something, they'll go away and they'll come back and, and blow you away with what they've done. And it's all about identifying a, it's not about is micromanaging good or bad, is it's is micromanaging right or wrong for this individual that you have on your team. Now, if you are not a good micromanager, that's a really important insight because it, it can lead to one of two outcomes. Either it, the outcome is, is your own self-improvement and learning how to micromanage and adjust your style for individual team members, or it's an indicator that you shouldn't be hiring people in your team that require that kind of management style because it will surely fail in terms of their output, in terms of their overall happiness in the role and your expectations of them. Can I ask, what makes a good micromanager then? Well, a good micromanager is someone who is, I'm a terrible micromanager. I've I've never been good at it. And so I, I look for people on my team that don't need to be micromanaged. I look for people on my team that are better than I am at what they do. I look for people on my team that can be advisors to me and help grow the organization. 
mission. But I also look for people on my team that I, I can align on a vision and then they can go off and, and do great work and, and with, with minimal um, interaction from me. Um, and, and that's part delegation, but it, it's partly because we're moving so fast and, and, and frankly, there's just not enough time to dig into the weeds on everything, right? I, I tell my team, if I'm in the weeds on something, generally speaking, there's probably an issue. Uh, but that's not the case for, for other members on the team. There are other members on our team. And it's, it's particularly a, a micromanaging may be a function of, of a more junior your level experienced employee uh, where they, they do want the constant feedback. They do want a feedback loop that's frequent so that there's, you know, things aren't going off the rails at any point in time. And there's, there's, uh, there's checkpoints along the way that ensure that that employee is meeting their objectives. So I think what makes a good micromanager is probably patience is, is probably the most important quality uh, because it's a lot of work. But if the caliber of, of the employee that requires the micromanaging is there and they're doing great work, they just need a lot of feedback, then it's probably worth the time investment. You said about moving at extreme speed there and being able to execute quickly and without necessarily having kind of uh, heavy guidance. I'm always intrigued by the transition from jack of all trades to specialist. Uh, you said before that grads maybe shouldn't say when entering the workforce, uh, I'll do what you need me to do because you need the more specialist athlete in sales or marketing. Talk to me about this then. And at what stage you've seen the team develop from jack of all trades in the one man office that it starts to specialist today? Yeah. So, so just to clarify, what, what I meant when, when I talked about college grads finding work and, and sort of and selling themselves as being interested in a particular category or vertical or, or department within an organization that they're excited about was more about how a entry-level college grad can sell themselves into an organization. And, and what I mean by that is uh, we still today thrive on the athletes, right? The athletes that have a particular role, but they can quickly morph and, and do other things. I, you know, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say multitasking because I think multitasking is, is frankly a misnomer. It doesn't actually, you know, the human brain isn't wired to multitask, but folks that can compartmentalize and can do a number of different tasks across an organization and do them well. Our head of operations is probably the best example of this, and she owns six distinct departments um, and does an incredible job of managing all of them. And, and that's that's all about compartmentalizing. It's not about multitasking, but it's about being able to juggle and, and, and shift between multiple priorities at any given time. Now, there are a lot of athletes on that team, but in terms of how a, a entry-level employee positions themselves for, for candidacy inside an organization, what I mean when I say candidates should align themselves with a particular department is it's a highly competitive job environment, right? And there's so many candidates that are coming to us and saying, I want to do sales, I want to do marketing, I want to do customer service, I want to do product, I want to do engineering. Those are the candidates that we put into our funnel. If we have a candidate that comes to us and says, what do you want me to do? I'll do anything. They're at the bottom of the pile because there's nowhere to prioritize them. And they, they've essentially put the work on us to determine where in the organization they should sit. Now, that may work for a very, very early stage company. You just need butts and seats to get stuff done. Um, we're at a point in time in our organization now where we're, we're just over 70 people, where we are hiring salespeople, we are hiring product managers, we are hiring customer success and customer service and marketing people. And so it's great to have athletes. And I, and I would never say that I, I would turn away an athlete, but I want an athlete that wants to specialize in a certain area. I want, and, and similarly, I want a college grad that says, I'll do anything, but I really want to get my feet wet in sales, or I really want to get my feet wet in marketing. I read this book and I, I got so excited about customer success or whatever it is, demonstrate some ability or some enthusiasm in any direction and, and drive hard in that direction. And so it's less about needing athletes. We'll always need athletes and want athletes, but specialized talent is also very important as you scale an organization. No, absolutely. I do agree. In, in terms of the hiring, though, as you spoke about there, as you said, now it's 70. I'm intrigued to hear about your approach to hiring today and how are you determined 
determine the, the kind of person and the company fit and the real alignment there? I think hiring is about two things. Um, one is about it's identifying fit. And the second priority is about mitigating risk. And, it, and actually, in, in a pretty raw way, it's a lot like fundraising. It's what VCs look for when they invest in companies, right? Is this an incredible opportunity? And what are the risks? And so you, you actually run a hiring process a little bit like that. Uh, we have the individuals come in. They meet with all of the different stakeholders, whether it's their direct manager, a peer, someone else in another department to do another review. But then it's about mitigating risks, right? So once we identify that this person has a lot of potential, they've demonstrated a keen interest in the role, not necessarily expertise in the role, but a desire to exceed and do great things at the organization, then it's about mitigating the risk. It's about, you know, has this person done this before? If not, that's a risk. Now, can we live with that risk? And, and many times the answer is yes, because it's a it's a junior level or it's an entry level or mid-level role. But then how does this person, if they're a salesperson, um, have them do a project, come and present to us, right? Pitch to us. Let's do reference checks. And it's not just about reference checks. It's about back-channel references. And back-channel references are a fairly controversial topic. I think they're an essential part of a hiring process uh, because I think the, the unvarnished feedback that can, you can get from the market about a candidate is, is so powerful in understanding what the potential risks are. And, and we lean heavily on that. And, and so I think it's, it's really about sort of, again, um, identifying what are the opportunities here, getting excited about the candidate, getting that, that candidate excited about your business. So it is, there is part sales there. But then again, it's about risk mitigation, understanding what are the weaknesses, what are the potential risks, and, and sort of what's your risk tolerance? Can you, can you live with those risks? Because there's always risks, right? There's always some unknown, and nobody, nobody hires perfectly. So every company has some turnover. Can, can I ask, how, but, have you, how, have, how have you seen your risk profile change over the years? Did it used to be much more, not whimsical, but much more flexible in terms of, well, we're at an early stage company. Yeah. We don't have the flexibility to hire a CRO from Salesforce. That's right. The risk tolerance changes dramatically over time. In the early days, you, know, you, you would hire someone off the street if, they, if you could convince them to come work for you because it was all about you know, me selling someone on why they should come to work for a company that's pre-funded, pre-revenue, and just an idea. And that's, that's pure sales. And so you can't afford to be picky um, as the company grows up and you get funding and you get brands and, and great customers uh, onto your, your website, then you can afford to be a little bit more deliberate about the kind of talent you're bringing into the organization. And that also actually maps to experience level. The more sophisticated your hiring process becomes, the more successful your company becomes, the more you will want to and can afford to pay up for specialists. I think pay, paying for great talent um, is one of the most important things and, and lessons for, for SaaS founders. I think far too often we try and cut corners and, and sort of we end up being penny wise and pound foolish because when you hire someone great and great people always command a higher uh, a higher salary. When you hire something someone great, it's just incredible what happens next. When you hire someone mediocre uh, because you either couldn't afford it or didn't want to pay it or wanted to move too fast, having a, a B-level player occupying a seat is infinitely worse than having that seat empty uh, because it, it takes way longer to manage that person out of the organization. It takes way longer to rehire that person. It takes way longer. It takes a long time to realize that that person is a B-player in the first place. right? And so as we grow up as an organization, one of the things that's slowing down is our hiring process. We're becoming much more sophisticated, deliberate, and thoughtful about the people that we bring into the organization and much more deliberate about the people that we manage.
manage out. Can I ask, are there any problems in terms of paying up, in terms of kind of uh, misaligned incentivization for the employee joinings being solely based around potentially an uptick in money over the average salary? Well, the obvious downside of paying up is running out of money. <laughs> but as long as that's not not a an issue, um, when, when I talk about paying up, what I mean is, is paying market or slightly above market for incredible talent. Startups are hard, and startups can never compete with the kind of resources and lifestyle benefits that a large organization can afford. And, and that's okay, because it self-selects people that really thrive in a startup environment, that want to get in at the ground floor at an early stage, and like the, the grit that is inherent in, in startup life. But what that means is there's trade-offs, right? So we, when I say paying up, it may be in equity. It may be in paying, you know, my definition of paying up is paying market rate, right? Because we generally speaking can't afford to compete with a Facebook or a LinkedIn or, you know, any of the big this, titans. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, you know, it's all about identifying sort of what we can afford. And then when you find someone incredible doing whatever you can do to get them on board, in some cases, it's it's equity. In some cases, it's cash compensation, whatever it needs to be. But, but my point in, about paying up is not about cash. It's about doing whatever you need to do to hire incredible people. Yeah, no, I agree. But I want to move into a quick fire now. And this is called Dan's 60 seconds faster. So 60 seconds per one. How does that sound? Fire away. So let's start with the carrot or the stick. Which do you prefer to implement internally? Both. Um, I, I think this concept of um, unlimited everything and no boundaries and, and no budgets, um, spend spend like it's your own, be reasonable, um, actually creates more harm than good because it creates stress in, and anxiety in terms of not knowing what is appropriate. Right. Well, I, I don't want my employees spending their money like it's their own because I don't know how they spend money like it's their own. So I do think gu- guidelines are very important. That's why companies have policies. But within those policies, there's a huge amount of room for employees to optimize in the interest of the company. And that's where the carrots come in and the benefits, right? And so the rewards. And so, and obviously that's Rocket Trip's whole founding principle is that by introducing the motivation to change behavior, we can realize a far better outcome than any draconian policy could ever create. So it's not about intense sticks. It's about the right balance of stick and carrot. What's your favorite SAS reading material? Well, Saster, of course. Um, and then yeah, I love the stuff that David um, at Matrix puts out, Tom's work at Redpoint. But also the, the essays that Paul, we, we went through Y Combinator, and I think Paul Graham is, is one of the most extraordinary minds in terms of getting to the point and communicating concepts that, that are, are so relevant at actually at any stage of an organization. Y Combinator mostly focuses on, obviously, the very early stage. But a lot of the stuff that Paul Graham has written transcends stages, and it's, it's really important, and it's, it's good material. But it's not just about the, the, the content that I read. It's about the network, right? It's about getting out and talking to other SaaS founders. It's about guys like Matt Strauss, who are you know one and a half, two and a half years ahead of us um, and have been through this. And far too often, SaaS founders sit in the echo chamber of their own mind and try and recreate the wheel that's been created a million other times by a million other people. It's just far more efficient to learn from other founders and, and avoid the pitfalls that they may have fallen into. What do you know now that you wish you had known at the beginning? The original thesis of Rocket Trip was uh, not to compete with the industry, but to cooperate right? and to introduce um, what we call an incentivized decision-making or incentivized behavioral change into the corporate travel ecosystem. And by doing so, we, we have very, very favorable partnerships with huge organizations in the space, most notably Concur, but a lot of others. And, and what that does is good and bad, right? There, there's, there's downsides to everything. The good is that it affords us the opportunity to work with massive clients. And so we, we very quickly moved up market. Um, and our focus now is the high end of the mid-market and large enterprise. 
enterprise because we can partner with their existing infrastructure. The downside is that we're sort of beholden to their product roadmaps, right? So, you know, it's all about convincing third parties to to move at our speed. And suffice to say, large companies don't necessarily move as quick as startups. Um, and so, that's been a challenge. Mm-hmm. I want to finish though today and moving away from the quick fire with a little bit of focus on the space uh, mm-hmm. that you're in, in particular with Rocket Ship. Now, you're in the business of, as we said, saving businesses money uh, through corporate travel, essentially baked down to its most simplest. With that in mind, though, I'm intrigued to hear your thoughts on a quote from uh, Jay Desai, a former guest of the show at Patient Pin, who said, we don't have budgets and people are more responsible spending when they don't. I'm intrigued what you make of this kind of liberal essence and what the fundamentals to cost savings are for you internally in a business. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, we don't have budgets either. And, and what I mentioned before was it's not about having budgets and tight policy. It's about having guidelines. It's about telling employees what's appropriate. So I don't I don't agree with the mantra, spend money like it's your own, because it, it leaves too much room for error, too much room for ambiguity. I believe in guardrails. I believe in guidelines. I believe in telling employees what's appropriate to spend. But then, as soon as you tell employees what's appropriate to spend, of course, there's no incentive for them to spend less. And human beings, by definition, are lazy, and we optimize for our own self-interest. And that's not good or bad. That's just biological. It's survival. And that means if you tell me I'm allowed to stay in a four-star hotel, I will stay in a four-star hotel. If you tell me I'm allowed to fly business class, who in the right mind volunteers to fly coach, right? And then, so from from the policy, that sets the guideline. And then from there, it's all gravy, right? From there, it's all a question of the policy determines what is permissible, what we expect. That's the expected behavior. But from there, there's a huge amount of room between expected behavior and zero, right? If I can get an employee to enthusiastically stay with a friend instead of staying in a four-star hotel, and they're willing to do it because half of everything they save goes to them and the remaining half goes to the company, then everybody wins. Now, that makes, you know, and different policies make sense at different stages. But as companies grow up, eventually policy is sort of a required part of, of process, right? Because there's too many employees, it's too hard to manage a loose policy. I haven't run into a company with over a thousand employees that has no company policy around uh, specifically business travel, right? It's, it's about what are the guidelines that we expect you to operate within. And then Rocket Trip is effectively the afterburners of the bonus program on top of that policy. So by motivating an employee to do something they otherwise wouldn't do, in other words, do something extraordinarily beneficial to the company, why not reward them for that kind of behavior? It's, it's sort of like sales commissions, right? Why do we pay pe- salespeople commissions? We pay salespeople commissions because we know financial incentives change behavior, right? The more they sell, the more they make. The concept of Rocket Trip is really no different. We're trying to drive a certain behavior that has a lot of potential, but it won't happen unless we motivate that behavior. That's the whole point of, of the Rocket Trip platform. Can I ask, has monetary incentive not proved to actually not be a good um, incentive to work harder and to be more productive? Uh, the likes of Dan Ariely have said so, I believe. Right. Yeah. So, so there's there's this big debate, right, between intrinsic motivation and extrinsic motivation. And we've seen a lot of examples of failures where others have tried to gamify corporate environments, right, in terms of how do we get employees to be healthier or do more community service or um, spend less on business travel. Gamification fails. Um, and, and gamification, the way I define it, is all about the intrinsic motivation. It's badges, it's levels, it's stars, it's digital high fives, pats on the back for good work. That kind, Those feel good. Those intrinsic motivations or intrinsic motivators are powerful to change behavior when the behavior, the behavior is desirable to the person exhibiting the behavior itself. In other words, that famous behavioral experiment in Sweden where they made a uh, piano out of stairs, right? So you could take the escalator or the stairs. If you took the stairs, they put a piano down so it would play music as you walked up the stairs. Uh, human beings want to be healthier. And so it's in our best interest to take the stairs. And because they've made it worth our while now with intrinsic motivation, it feels good. We will 
take the stairs. When you're talking about business class and coach, you're talking about the employee giving something up of value to them. In order for the employee to give something up of value to them, we have to make it worth their while. And so the Rocket Trip programs are all about identifying the value exchange, right? What is the value necessary? What is What do we need to provide to the employee to offset the cost of what we're asking the employee to give up? And as it turns out, and we've tried this, intrinsic motivation doesn't work, right? The, the, the feel good, the, the badges, the stars, the leaderboards, they help, but they're not actually going to change the behavior. If I want an employee to stop staying in a four-star hotel and opt for an Airbnb or to stay with a friend or take a connecting flight when they're allowed to fly nonstop, I have to make it worth their while. And what works really, really well is money. And money effectively is, is a great motivator for any employee anywhere in the world because human beings generally think the same way. No, I love that. And I think there's no better way to finish than on what works well, money. Uh, but it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show today, Dan. As I said, Matt said, I absolutely had to have you on and it's absolutely lived up to our expectations. So thank you so much for joining me today. Great being here, Harry. Thanks a lot. And I want to say two big thank yous. First to Dan for sharing his incredible journey with Rocket Trip and the exciting journey that lies ahead. Also to Matt Strazett, namely, for the intro today, without which the episode would not have been possible. And likewise, if you love the episode today and would like to see more from us, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hdebbings with two Bs, or check out our very appropriately named new blog, mojitovc.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback on that. But before we leave you today, do not forget to check out Algolia. Now, Algolia is the robust search API that allows developers to integrate lightning-fast type hypotolerant search into their SaaS product. Out of the box, Algolia offers developers a powerful platform for building great search experiences. By owning the entire stack from engine to server, Algolia free up development teams to focus on adding intuitive search that delights users. This is perfect for existing search teams looking to spend less time on maintenance and infrastructure management and more time on user experience. And for smaller SaaS teams, Algolia is a great investment on top of your existing stack that requires no specialist engineers. And you can learn more about how Algolia helps SaaS scale search because now sasta podcast listeners can get one month free at algolia.com forward slash sasta with the coupon code sasta podcast as always i so appreciate all your support and i cannot wait to bring you next monday's episode